Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Bill Nye inspired this podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, I was recently on a flight. I think it was when I was coming back from South by Southwest. And... um, I was watching the um, master class with Bill Nye on my flight, and yeah. he just just casually mentioned William of Ockham and Ockham's Razor, and I was like, "Oh yeah, there's got to be a person behind that whole thing." Uh-huh. And then I started looking stuff up on my phone on the flight, and now it's an episode. <laughs> I will say this person is from longer ago than I would have imagined, just from the phrase Ockham's Razor and the way it's thrown around the internet. Yes. Um, and often not quite with the real uh sense of meaning of of the writings of William of Ockham. Uh, we'll talk about that, you know, towards the end, and also some behind the scenes. Yeah. But um, I like I said, I I started <laughs> researching him, and then discovered things about him that I was like, what. There's some good drama in this one. So uh, that is who we are talking about today, and specifically, really, his clashes with the Pope. There were a lot. (laughs) So way before the clashing with the Pope started, William was born in the winter that straddled the years of 1287 and 1288. His exact date of birth within that winter is unknown. As his name suggests, he was born in the village of Oak Hamlet, or Ockham, southwest of London. While there's only speculation about his earliest years, we know that sometime between the years of 1294 and 1301, so at some point when he was younger than 13, he was sent to London to study with the Franciscan Order, also known as the Order of the Friars Minor. It appears that as part of this move... 
Williams' family relinquished any control or rights that they had regarding his future. He was essentially given over to the order. This may have been uh, done because an education within the London Greyfriars, as they were called, would have just exceeded any opportunity that he had otherwise. And after getting a solid foundational education in his childhood and teen years with the Greyfriars, in his early 20s, which would have put it in the late 13 teens, Williams started really studying theology. There's a little bit of uncertainty about where he started studying religion more seriously, but he did eventually land at Oxford in a two-year course studying the theological compendium Sentences. That's also known as the Book of Sentences, and it's believed to have been written right in the middle of the 12th century. That text was written by a man named Pierre Lombard, who you'll also see as Peter Lombard. This was a French theologian, the Bishop of Paris, Lombard's sentences consisted of four books with different spiritual themes. Book one examined God, the Holy Trinity, and concepts of a divine force leading humans to good, the nature of evil, and predestination. Book two covers all of the elements that went into and led up to humankind's fall from grace, including writing on angels and demons. Book three focuses on Jesus Christ and the path to human redemption. And book four goes over the sacraments and the final stages of mortal life. So death, judgment, and the transition to the hereafter, whether that's heaven or hell. Occam did not receive a degree from Oxford. Once he had completed that two-year course, he returned to the Greyfriars in London and settled into life there. And he wrote a lot of his most well-known works in the years immediately following his time at Oxford, and they were not always especially popular. These were primarily commentaries on sentences and sometimes called the long-accepted text into question. This led to friction and William having to defend his work before regional leadership of the order. It is also possible that his contentious views on the sentences are the reason that he left Oxford without what would be the equivalent of a master's degree. Ockham was not the only person who was invited to leave Oxford during this time. A member of the Dominican order named John Lutterell was chancellor at Oxford when Ockham was there, but he was so disliked that he was pushed out of his position not long after William of Ockham left. To be clear, though, the two of them did not share the same ideology. For a lot of history, it has been believed that because of Ockham's views, which often clashed with other members of the order, he was sent to Avignon to be charged with teaching heresy before the papal court. There is also sometimes a direct link made between his early exit from his time at Oxford and his travel to Avignon, meaning it was the summons to appear before the Pope that interrupted his academic work. Uh, just as a note, if you're like, Avignon, this was during the 67-year period when the papacy was seated in Avignon instead of Rome, which started when Pope Clement V refused to relocate from France to Rome when he was elected Pope in 1309. There is more to that story, but that is outside of today's focus on William of Ockham. As we said, this is how Ockham's move to France has been characterized for centuries. But an article that appeared in 1978 in the journal Franciscan Studies made the case that the motivation for traveling to France was much more benign for William of Ockham. 
That article was by George Gnish, titled Biographical Rectifications Concerning Occam's Avignon Period. This cites letters written by Pope John XXII to establish a slightly different timeline and points to the trip to Avignon being catalyzed by nothing more than just the next step in Occam's academic studies. Regardless of the situation that brought him to France, Occam was free to basically do what he wanted while he was there so long as he stuck to Avignon. One account that I read described this situation as a loose house arrest, which I don't know why I really loved. Uh, And he never returned to England. But perhaps most importantly, he was once again in contact with John Lutterell, who had gone to Avignon after being ousted at Oxford in the hopes of cozying up to the papacy and securing his career that way. And when it came to Occam, Lutterell was ready. He had studied Occam's teachings on the sentences and had compiled a list of 56 points on which he felt Occam was incorrect and even heretical. Lutterell was, as you remember, working on his own image with the church, so it benefited him to point out the perceived failings of Occam's teachings. He also sat on a committee with five other people to review Occam's work, and specifically his commentary on the sentences, to do that more deeply, to write reports for the Pope about it. Two reports were produced by the committee, and their findings squarely pointed to Occam being out of step with accepted religious teachings of the time. Occam seems to have been pretty unwilling to bend to anyone's criticism of his interpretations of the sentences, because when those reports were filed, he in turn wrote a new commentary of the sentences with corrections meaning that he further criticized the long-respected books of Pierre Lombard. If this seems like Occam was rebellious, it's actually a little more complicated than that. He was what would come to be known as a theologian logician, meaning that he applied pretty fairly rigid logic to his interpretations of religious matters. He held God as the most important figure in his analysis, of course, and based his logical analyses on the acceptance that God is omnipotent, and that omnipotence allows the deity to provide salvation for humans. So when confronted with his alleged heresy, Occam used all of his logic to essentially walk critics through his flowchart of the logical thinking that had brought him to his determinations on matters of religion. And he was apparently very skilled when it came to debating such matters. This all seemed like it was going to get Occam condemned by the Catholic Church, but he wasn't, at least not yet. And that was probably because there were other pressing issues to attend to for the papacy, Before we get to those, we should talk about Pope John the 22nd, and we will get to that after we pause for a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the 
the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. Pope John XXII, who was born Jacques Duez, became the Pope after a lot of conflict over who was going to succeed his predecessor, Pope Clement V, who died on April 20, 1314. Clement V had made Duez Cardinal Bishop of Porto a year and a half before he died. Duez's background was in both canon and civil law. Because of his legal knowledge, he had, in his career, argued the absolute supremacy of the church in all matters when it came into conflict with government and royal interests, particularly regarding Pope Boniface VIII and his bull of papal supremacy in 1302. When Clement V died, the Holy See was vacant for more than two years because the Council of Cardinals responsible for selecting the new pope was in such a state of conflict between two factions that they couldn't even agree on where to meet to have the discussion. After the first council dissolved because of these issues, various royals got involved to try to urge the church to find a way forward. This was very destabilizing for Europe. After Philip V of France and Navarre took his throne in November of 1316, he got very serious with the Catholic Church about resolving this matter, and he decided himself that the cardinals would meet in Lyon, France, in a Dominican monastery, and they would emerge with a decision. 
So there is a bit of an interesting twist in that Jacques Duez, who argued for ultimate power of the church over monarchies, was only elected to become Pope John XXII after the King of France kind of made it happen. As we mentioned before the break, Occam seemed to have dodged a condemnation. He had kind of settled into life in Avignon. He was continuing his philosophical works, completing, among other things, the work that came to be known as the Quadlibets. There was a whole other problem brewing in the Catholic Church's leadership over the way some aspects of the Church operated. The Franciscan order believed that religious leaders and brothers in their order should live like Jesus, meaning they could not acquire wealth or own anything, but should instead live off the kindness of others and things that they could manage to generate themselves, like growing produce, although that involved the use of loaned land. And this was just a basic part of living as a Franciscan. And Pope John XXII, who was head of the church at the time, was not on the same page. The head of the Franciscans at the time, Italian theologian Michael of Cesena, traveled to Avignon to confront John XXII about this issue. This is sometimes characterized as the Pope having sent for Michael, and other accounts kind of make it seem like Michael of Cesena initiated the trip. Michael of Cesena had arrived in Avignon in 1327, but the conflict lasted into the following year, and the arguments over the issue only intensified. The crux of the matter was, as we said, whether religious figures, and specifically Franciscans, could own property. But it had come into sharp focus over a man named Bonagratia of Bergamo, Like Pope John XXII, Bonagratia had studied both canon and civil law, but unlike the Pope, he was quite adamant that Franciscans in particular should maintain their poverty. The reason this was such a hot issue for Pope John XXII was that, as you'll recall, he became the Pope when there was a lot of infighting in the church. And one of the issues that had divided people was Franciscan poverty. So it was one of the first problems he was expected to solve. And here he was, a decade later, still having arguments over it. So when Michael of Cesena arrived in France, it was to try to untangle this problem and specifically to advocate on behalf of Bonagratia of Bergamo. To support his argument, Michael asked Occam to do an academic survey of Pope John XXII's own writings and to basically compile a report. Uh, as an aside, Bonagratia of Bergamo was never freed from his confinement in Avignon and died there. So Occam began to pour over everything that had been written on the matter, and specifically what had been written and discussed in the years since John had become the Pope, and even more specifically, writings by Pope John XXII. There is a passage in the second chapter of the Rule of St. Francis, which is titled, On Those Who Wish to Adopt This Life. And the Pope had quoted this in his writings on the matter. It is about clothes. Uh, Here is what the Pope wrote. Quote, First, when it is said in the rule that those who have promised obedience may have one tunic with a hood and another, if they so wish, without a hood, and likewise, let the brothers wear poor clothes, over the sense of those words, the declaration of our predecessors, Nicholas III and Clement V, limpidly flow, and the aforementioned Clement was led to leave the judgment of poor clothes to the ministers, custodians, and the guardians of the order. 
There had apparently been a lot of disagreement about the level of poverty involved in assuming a life with the Franciscan order. What did poor clothes mean? Did they mean that they were of poor quality? Was it that they were worn down? The specific meaning was important because it related to their basic day-to-day way of living, and if it was not agreed upon, strife would only continue. John XXII wrote the following statement on the issue, quote, We, after seriously listening to arguments from both sides and fully understanding them, wish to put a final end to this business. On the counsel of our brothers, we declare and say that when it says in the rule, let all the brothers wear poor clothes, this sort of poorness of clothes, both in the external habit and in the tunic underneath, the aforementioned Clement decreed must be understood according to the custom and conditions of a particular area, and consequently, the poorness is left to the judgment of the ministers. And no less do we commit to the judgment of the ministers, custodians, and guardians the authority to determine, that is, to judge and prescribe, the length, width, size, weave, form, or figure, and other similar accidents of the habit and the tunic underneath in which these brothers in the order of minors must be clothed. Above all, whether these clothes are in accordance with the rule and with papal declarations. So if that's not clear, he's like, it's going to be different no matter, like, depending on where you live. (laughs) So we'll just let the different areas decide. John XXII also wrote a lot of notes about the rules as set forth by St. Francis, and there are entire scholarly papers dedicated to listing them. There is no consensus regarding when these notes were made. They could have come years later after the events we're talking about today and William of Ockham's place in them. All of this is historically important because John XXII's time as Pope is sometimes called by scholars, quote, a black time. This wasn't only about tunics, obviously, but that whole discussion is kind of a representative of a larger set of proclamations that were made by John XXII about the Franciscans. He was making these decisions after considering them almost exclusively, it seems, through a legal lens. And that makes sense because he didn't have any serious religious training. He was not a theologian by training, but someone who rose to power in the church through his knowledge of canon law. Regarding the issue of the Franciscans and to settle the ongoing disputes about what St. Francis meant in various rules— Pope John XXII made three declarations about the operation of the Franciscan order. The first was the papal bull Ad Conditorum to the Founder, which was issued on December 8, 1322. In it, the Pope undid one of the big ways that the Church had made it possible for the Franciscans to function. Prior to this bull, the way they had gotten around St. Francis's rule that no Franciscan could receive or even touch money or to have possession of anything was that anything that was given to the Franciscans to help the order, whether it was land, clothing, books, etc., that was technically all owned by the papacy and not by the order. The Franciscans could use things, but they could not, as individuals or an order, own things. This bull undid that arrangement and said that the Franciscan order would have to own their own stuff. This decision was made by the Pope using the logic of Roman law, where if using a thing destroys its substance, you have to own that thing. 
Yeah, otherwise it would be theft. Uh, the second bull, cum inter nonulos, when among some, was issued in November 1323, and it further dismantled Franciscan ideology. In it, John XXII rejected the idea that Jesus and the apostles had owned nothing. This is a basic tenet of why the Franciscans lived the way they did. The entire reason the Franciscan order required adherents to give up all earthly possessions was based on the belief that they were living as Jesus and the apostles had. So the Pope issuing this bull was kind of like saying, eh, you're all wrong. The third bull that John XXII issued, Quia Corandum, because some, responded to all of the critics of the first two and to once again assert that you cannot use a thing if you don't own it. When we come back from a quick sponsor break, we'll talk about Occam's report, which came to some pretty bold conclusions. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. Thank you. 
after all of his study, Occam's report on all of this ended up being pretty bad for everyone. Occam came to the conclusion that Pope John XXII's rejection of apostolic poverty was heretical, willfully heretical, making the leader of the Catholic Church a heretic, which meant that he should not be Pope. Occam wrote that he found in John XXII's writings, quote, a great many things that were heretical, erroneous, silly, ridiculous, fantastic, insane, and defamatory, contrary to orthodox faith, good morals, natural reasons, certain experience, and fraternal charity. He also noted that the Pope didn't have a strong theological background, and this surely angered John XXII because he had made a significant effort at studying theology as he rose to power, and this was likely kind of a sensitive subject. Cut to William of Ockham and Michael of Chazena secretly leaving Avignon in the middle of the night on May 26, 1328. The two Franciscans who were traveling with supporters who also chose to leave Avignon over the Pope's position all went to Pisa, Italy, There, they stayed with Emperor Louis IV, the Bavarian, who had his own beef with the papacy. In Louis IV's case, it was because he supported the idea of the Holy Roman Empire existing with some separation politically from the papacy. In large part, it was because he and others believed that the empire should be able to elect their own emperor without the leadership of the Catholic Church getting involved. At this time, the convention was for the Holy Roman Emperor to be elected by the people, but then approved by the Pope before he could take his throne. Louis IV wanted to omit this papal approval step. He wanted to consolidate power. He also accused the Pope of heresy, so he had some things in common with William of Ockham and Michael of Chazana. Although, to be clear, those two men were not after power in the way that the Emperor was. There is so much more to Louis IV's story, of course, and the many machinations of his rise to power and his time as emperor, including the installation of the anti-pope Nicholas V. That is all outside the scope of this episode. The important thing is, they all just had a lot of gripes against John XXII. Michael and Occam were officially excommunicated on June 6, 1328. That was just two weeks after they had left Avignon. But the official reason for William of Occam's excommunication was not that he had challenged the Pope's legitimacy. It was recorded that he was excommunicated for leaving Avignon without permission. But even though these men had left Avignon and were no longer part of the Catholic Church, they continued to bicker with the Pope. First, Michael of Chazena wrote detailed criticisms of the Pope after they left. The Pope responded with another bull, going point by point through Michael's document. And then, in 1332, William of Ockham wrote a criticism of that document of the Pope's called The Work of Ninety Days. One of the ways Ockham attacked the Pope's arguments regarding property was to point out that a moral right to use a thing is enough justification. One doesn't have to own it. He invoked the Garden of Eden and how the perfect world intended for man started without any concept of ownership. That did not come into play until the original sin, and so the Franciscan way of life was closer to the desired state than one in which they were forced to take ownership of physical things. Occam noted in his work that once the concept of property and a human law was introduced into the world, the original design for using things was impeded. 
He also made the case that there are just going to be things that have to be used out of necessity. And in such cases, the morality of the situation may still be to respect the rights of others, but that the necessity is more important than an owner's legal right to prevent use. Franciscans, he explained, didn't exercise any legal rights, but were bound by moral rights. They would never, for example, get into a property dispute if usage permission were withdrawn, but they should be able to use the thing if they needed to without bringing ownership into the situation, which would go against their beliefs. Yeah, they were generally, like, non-confrontational on all things. One of the illustrative stories that was uh, included in a discussion of this in one of the the papers I read was, like, uh, they brought up a story of Franciscans staying in, like, a, a place, a building, and animals coming and moving in and them yielding to the animals because they were like, okay, <laughs> it's not ours, so you go ahead. <laughs> um, after an exhaustive case made regarding the nature of the Franciscan order and how it relates to the law, Occam spent the last two sections of the work of 90 days outlining again all of the ways in which Pope John XXII was a heretic. At the most basic level, just by changing the rules of poverty that had been part of Catholic truth meant that he was heretical in Occam's view. He also examined the concept of Catholic truth and defined it as anything that is taught in the Bible, anything that at any time is accepted as the Catholic truth by all Catholics with no dissent on the matter, and any new revelations attested by miracle. And he explains that the big issue with John the 22nd is not that he has had heretical beliefs because anyone can make a mistake, but that even when shown the heresy of that belief through a well-made argument, what Arkham calls a legitimate correction, still holds it. This is a pretty slick way to say, we keep explaining this to you and you refuse to change your position, so you must be a heretic. He also made the case that a pope holding heretical ideas shouldn't just be removed as pope. He stopped being pope the second he became a heretic. Sometime in 1329, Louis IV returned to Munich, and the refugees from Avignon went with him. William of Ockham stayed in Munich for the rest of his life, and although we don't know much about his day-to-day life there, we do know that this was a very productive time in which he wrote almost exclusively about political concepts and ideology. A lot of these examined the conflict that caused the papacy and King Louis IV to part ways. Occam made the case in his later writings that governments had existed before Christianity, so it made sense for them to continue to function that way. He recognized that there were secular rulers in the world and that the idea of papal supremacy was problematic. He also envisioned a world that all functioned under one world monarchy that would see to peace for all. Ackham is reported as having died late April 9th or early April 10th, 1347. He was about 60 at that time. It is sometimes reported that he died in 1349 when a plague swept through Munich, but 1347 does appear to be the correct date. He never reconciled with the Catholic Church. Over the centuries, William of Ockham has been categorized as being a founder or member of a lot of different branches of philosophy. Although he's most commonly associated with nominalism, he's also labeled as a conceptualist and sometimes as a terminist. But... For most people, the most famous idea associated with William of Ockham is Ockham's razor, 
But he did not coin that term, nor did any of his contemporaries. It didn't appear in print until 500 years after his death, when mathematician William Rowan Hamilton referenced Occam's razor, and that was spelled with two C's instead of O-C-K. You'll see various spellings of his name, and he referenced that in a paper in 1852. So you've probably heard Occam's razor explained as the idea that the simplest explanation for something is probably the most likely, or that the simplest way to solve a problem is the best. It was never quite the way William of Ockham talked about approaching things, which in his case, these, these are normally questions of philosophy. Ockham's approach has been more accurately explained as don't multiply entities beyond necessity, or among competing hypotheses, the one with the fewest assumptions should be selected. This idea of shaving away extraneous assumptions or anything that's not always clear to the thinker is what led Hamilton to associate this idea with a razor. Occam himself described his position on assumption and simplicity of reason this way. Quote, For nothing ought to be posited without a reason given, unless it is self-evident, literally known through itself, or known by experience or proved by authority of sacred scripture. And you can actually trace that idea back to one of Occam's biggest influences, Aristotle, who wrote, quote, We may assume the superiority, other things being equal, of the demonstration which derives from fewer postulates or hypotheses. So maybe it should be called Aristotle's Razor. <laughs> <laughs> but Occam's Razor sounds uh, kind of cooler. I don't know. It's fun to say. Um that's William of Ockham. It's it's interesting because he gets, in some cases, like all of his arguments with the Pope are really well documented, but then there are whole chunks of his life where it's like, no, nah, you seem to be just hanging out and writing. <laughs> A lot of other stuff. Do you have some listener mail? I do. This is from our listener, Karin, and I love the subject of her email because it says, yay, theater history. And Karin writes, hello, Holly and Tracy. This theater historian was so excited to open my podcast app today to find your topic of the day is Augustine Daly. One of my favorite, possibly apocryphal stories about Daly is one that speaks to his sometimes tyrannical manipulation of actors in his company. The story is that during a rehearsal, an actress had difficulty reaching the emotional heights or truth that he believed the scene required, or perhaps that the actress arrived late to the rehearsal. But at any rate, in frustration, he pulled out his pocket watch, threw it on the ground, and then stomped on it. Realizing that he had just smashed his grandfather's or father's watch, he began sobbing, which got him the behavior he wanted from the actress. It turns out he had many watches, and he used this manipulative trick several times. Thank you for all your amazing research and carefully written podcasts. If you've got a taste for some other really interesting theatrical figures in history, she gives us some suggestions. Um, I'm not giving them in case they're a fun surprise for later. All the best to you from our house of humans and felines. P.S. The attached photo is of our senior kitty, Cassie, the bestest kitty ever. Cassie is a little um, sweet-looking calico. No. Which I love. Or like a tortie. She might be a tortie, actually. I see no white. She's a tortie, I think. Which is even better, because they're usually very sassy and smart. Mm. Um, thank you, Karin, for that uh, that cute anecdote. I mean, it's a cute anecdote for us, because we're not living through being manipulated. But it's a good indicator of how times have changed in, tra- <laughs> in terms of how, <laughs> how people accept behaviors of people in power there are also still a lot of people manipulating others 
because they are in power. Mm-hmm. But uh, I feel like if that if that got exposed today on the part of a director, people would at least recognize that he's kind of a monster. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at iHeartRadio.com. You can also follow us on social media at Missed in History, and you can subscribe on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.